Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 349. Today's big Bible questions are, does every church have its own angel? And how can we really, really know Jesus rose from the dead? Well, happy Thursday, friends. I will say we're doing uh, more and more two questions uh, on the podcast recently. I guess it's because I know we've only got like, what, three weeks left in the year. So uh, it's pretty crazy. I haven't decided what to do for 2021 yet. If you want to leave some feedback on that, you can uh, jump onto our website, BibleReadingPodcast.com. I'd only plan to do this podcast for a week, but it seems like uh, every day or every couple of days we get some new subscribers, new people jumping on. It's not wildly popular or anything like that, uh, but uh, I know we are getting new friends from all around the world. And uh, if you want us to keep going, I'd love to hear from you. If you want us to change a little bit, I'd love to hear from you. I thought about going to a shorter format, maybe doing uh, 10 minutes in the Bible each day. Uh, and focusing a little bit more on the New Testament. But you know what? I'm still kind of praying through that and running out of time to do so. So pray with me that we will know what to do here in 2021. So today we're going to be reading Second Chronicles 10, Zephaniah 2, Luke 24, and Revelation 1. Now since Luke 24 is one of the key resurrection chapters in the Bible, and maybe if you've listened for a while, you know that is literally my favorite thing in the Bible to talk about, you know we're going to talk about Jesus rising from the dead. But first, a little side road in Revelation chapter 1, which also happens to be one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. So today is a good day for me. In this chapter, which is full of so many interesting and somewhat mysterious verses, we find John, quote, in the Spirit on the Lord's day. All of a sudden, he hears a voice behind him, turns around, and it is the resurrected and glorified Jesus and... John faints straight away. But Jesus has a message for John. John is aroused. And we're going to read that message today. And we're going to pay attention to any particular mention of angels in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. The revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him to show his servants what soon must take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, whatever he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in Asia, grace and peace to you from the one who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, so it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the affliction, kingdom, and endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet saying, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. 
When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe and with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. The hair of his head was as white as wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze as it is fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand, a sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was shining like the sun at full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last, and the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, write what you have seen, what is, and what will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand, and of the seven golden lampstands, is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Hmm. So that was the key verse for today's discussion. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. So after this passage, Jesus is going to dictate a letter to each of those seven churches, and all of the letters begin somewhat like the first letter, which is to the church at Ephesus, and we read it in tomorrow's reading, Revelation 2.1, which says, Write to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So here's the question. Does this mean that each church has an angel? Like an angel assigned to that particular church? Does the church I go to, for instance, Valley Baptist Church in Salinas, California, do we have an angel assigned by God to that church? Does your church have an angel? You know, it's a great and interesting question to grapple with. In order to answer this question, we do need to know something about the Greek word for angel, which is angelos. Interestingly, perhaps slightly confusingly, this word can mean angel as in the heavenly being, or it can simply mean messenger. Angels definitely serve in messenger capacity, but there are a few times in scripture where angelos certainly refers to a human not a heavenly messenger. For instance, Luke 7.24, uh, some messengers were sent by John to ask Jesus a question, and it says, after John's angelosses left, or his messengers left, he began to speak to the crowds about John. These were human messengers. These were regular people. How about James 2.25, talking about an incident in the Old Testament? James says, In the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works in receiving the angelosses, or the angeloi, the messengers, and sending them out by a different route? Or how about Matthew 11.10, referring to John the Baptist? Jesus says, This is the one about whom it is written, See, I am sending my angelos, or messenger, ahead of you, He will prepare your way before you. So all three of those verses translate the Greek word angelos as messenger. Now, of further interest, the word angel does not indicate alignment or allegiance. Now, what I mean by that can be demonstrated easily from a couple of verses in Scripture. Matthew 25, 41 says, Then Jesus will say, or then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. How about Revelation 12, 7? Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels also fought. How about that? 
Thus, we see that there are evil angels that serve Satan. That's alarming. Now, that doesn't answer our question, but it does complicate it just a little bit, doesn't it? We can eliminate one possibility right off the bat. It's quite certain that Jesus is not saying to send a letter to a church's angel of Satan or anything like that. But is he saying to send a letter to a church's angel or a church's human messenger, perhaps in a sort of metaphorical sense, referring to a human pastor or leader of the church. Well, the preponderance of the evidence seems to favor angel in the heavenly being sense because of the 186 times angelos is used in the Bible, 179 of those times seem to be clearly referring to a heavenly being, and only seven of those times does it appear to refer to a human messenger. Further evidence in that direction we can see that John never uses angelos to refer to anything but a heavenly being in either the Gospel of John, the Epistles of John, or the Book of Revelation. Now, does this prove that a church has an angel? I don't suppose it does, but it does seem seem to maybe indicate or hint in that direction. Well, two qualifiers here. Number one, each of the letters of Jesus is dictated and written to the church of a city. That's important. Now, I don't live in a huge city in Salinas. The population is around 160,000, but it's big enough that we have dozens and dozens of churches here. Yes, even in California. It's not like Alabama where I came from where the church is on every street corner, but there's tons of churches here. Does each of those churches have its own angel or is there an angel of the church of Salinas? That is all of the body of Christ that lives in this city. Well, God knows the answer to that question, but I certainly don't. Qualifier number two, it could be that churches in the first century had angels, but they don't now. Now, I suspect that it has stayed the same, but since this is more observational theology rather than theology derived from doctrinal passages that clearly state a truth, we just don't know for sure. Now, one more tidbit. I actually believe, but can't prove, that Jesus here used an ambiguous term, in other words, a term that could be understood in a couple of different ways, I think he used that quite intentionally. Why? Well, because we know that these letters were actually sent and received by human messengers because we still have a copy of them. They circulated around the churches in the first few centuries and they were read by the churches by humans in the churches. Thus, I think it's quite likely that somehow, some way, in the spiritual way that I don't fully understand, Jesus sent these letters both to the human envoys and to angelic ones. Well, that's my guess. You can, uh, uh, it's worth what you paid for it. We'll just put it that way. Finally, let's talk a bit about the resurrection since Luke 24 is focused in that. We'll read the chapter, Luke 24, and then I'd like to read a short portion from my book, which is called Easter Fact or Fiction, which will give you 20 reasons to believe Jesus factually rose from the dead. This is Luke chapter 24, verse 1. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. They went in, but did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men stood by them in dazzling clothes. So the women were terrified and bowed down to the ground. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Asked the men. He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, It is necessary that the Son of Man be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, be crucified and rise on the third day. And they remembered his words. 
Returning from the tomb, they reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them were telling the apostles these things. But these words seemed like nonsense to them, and they did not believe the women. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. When he stooped to look in, he saw only the linen cloth. So he went away amazed at what had happened. Now, that same day, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Together they were discussing everything that had taken place, and while they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came near and began to walk along with them. But they were prevented from recognizing him. Then he asked them, What is this dispute that you're having with each other as you're walking? And they stopped walking and looked discouraged. The one named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happened there in these days? What things? he asked them. So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who is a prophet, powerful in action and speech before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of these who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. And he said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. They came near the village where they were going, and he gave the impression that he was going farther, but they urged him, Stay with us, because it's almost evening, and now the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. It was as he reclined at the table with them that he took the bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. They said to each other, Weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? That very hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven, and those with them gathered together, who said, The Lord has truly been raised and appeared to Simon. Then they began to describe what had happened on the road and how he was made known to them by the breaking of the bread. As they were saying these things, he himself stood in their midst, and he said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and terrified and thought they were seeing a ghost. Why are you troubled, he asked them, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and feet, that it is I, myself. Touch me and see, because a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you can see I have. Having said this, he showed them his hands and feet, but while they were still amazed and in disbelief because of their joy, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? So they gave him a piece of a broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. And he told them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He also said to them, This is what is written, The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead the third day, and repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name. To all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. And look, I am sending you what my father promised. As for you, stay in the city until you are empowered from on high. Then he led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was carried up into heaven. After worshiping him, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple praising God. So, have you ever stopped to consider how 
odd and strange it is that Christians worship a person that was tried and convicted and executed by the government as a criminal. It's one of the really central oddities of Christianity, and the fact is that Christians don't treat like this fact as something that should be covered up and buried. It represents a core part of Christianity, a core part of the gospel. How could people worship a criminal executed by the state? It defies belief, and yet for hundreds of years, Christians have done just that. I consider it evidence, not proof, evidence that Jesus factually rose from the dead. Otherwise, how could it be that anybody would worship a convicted and executed person? Well, here's the last half of a chapter in my book, uh, Easter Fact or Fiction, that explores this. And now consider, given the gut-shredding horrors of the crucifixion, how how it came about that followers of Jesus glorified and worshipped him as the Son of God afterwards. If you deny the resurrection, what could you possibly propose in its place that would be strong enough to erase the memory of the crucifixion to the point that the early church worshipped Jesus. Consider also Willie Francis. Who's Willie Francis, you might ask? Well, one of the first things you'll note about Willie Francis is that millions of people don't worship him, and yet he shares a few things in common with Jesus. Willie was convicted of murder in Louisiana in 1945 for an act that he allegedly committed when he was 15. Despite the fact that he was underage, despite the fact that he was not tried by a jury of his peers, his jury was all white, Despite the fact that most of the physical evidence against Willie disappeared, and despite the fact that the gun used to kill the victim actually belonged to a deputy sheriff that had threatened in the past to kill the victim, despite all of these things, Willie Francis was convicted and electrocuted in May of 1946 in Louisiana. Only he didn't die. Willie Francis was one of the few people that have ever survived around with the electric chair, and he did so due to a drunk guard setting things up improperly. Sadly and unjustly, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that it wasn't cruel and unusual to re-execute a teenager, and Francis was re-executed in May of 1947. Aside from the multiple and disgusting racial injustices of that situation, I need to point out to you that nobody worshipped Willie Francis during that first year after his execution attempt failed. Nobody tried to start a religion around him or anything like that. Similarly, no religion has started around John Babacom Lee or Joseph Samuel, despite the fact that both of those men also survived multiple hanging attempts. Why not? Why not venerate, honor, and worship people like Lee, Francis, and Samuel? Well, because even though there was incredible injustice in the case of Willie Francis, it would be really, really odd to worship a convicted criminal who somehow managed to escape death. Take away the resurrection, and it's incredibly strange to worship Jesus of Nazareth. Sure, he was a great teacher. Socrates was a great teacher also. And he was also unjustly killed, but nobody's going to whirl up this Sunday to First Baptist of Socrates and celebrate Easter or whatever, are they? I submit that it's very difficult to explain why so many Christians follow Jesus after his terribly bloody, painful, and embarrassing crucifixion if there was not a literal and actual resurrection that took place three days later. If you'd like a demonstration of how odd it is that somebody would worship a man crucified on a cross— Then try wearing a flashy gold electric chair necklace sometime, and when people ask you about it, 
Tell them you worship an executed criminal. The look on their face will tell you all you need to know about how first century Jews would have responded to claims about Jesus if he didn't literally and truly rise from the dead. Something to think about. Well, let's continue reading in Second Chronicles chapter 10, verse 1. Then Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone to Shechem to make him king. When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard about it, for he was in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon's presence, Jeroboam returned from Egypt, so they summoned him. Then Jeroboam and all Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam. Your father made our yoke harsh, therefore lighten your father's harsh service and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Rehoboam replied, Return to me in three days. So the people left. So then King Rehoboam consulted with the elders who had attended his father Solomon when he was alive, asking, How do you advise me to respond to this people? They replied, If you will be kind to this people and please them by speaking kind words to them, they will be your servants forever. But he rejected the advice of the elders who had advised him, and he consulted with the young men who had grown up with him, the ones attending him, and he asked them, What message do you advise we send back to this people who said to me, Lighten the yoke your father put on us? Then the young men who had grown up with him told him, This is what you should say to the people who said to you, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you make it lighter on us. This is what you say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's waist. Now therefore my father burdened you with a heavy yoke, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with barbed whips. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam on the third day, just as the king had ordered, saying, Return to me on the third day. Then the king answered them harshly. King Rehoboam rejected the elders' advice and spoke to them according to the young men's advice, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to it. My father disciplined you with whips, but I with barbed whips. The king did not listen to the people because of the turn of events came from God in order that the Lord might carry out his word that he had spoken through Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam son of Nebat. When all Israel saw that the king had not listened to him, the people answered the king, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Israel, each to your tent. David, look after your own house now. So all Israel went to their tents, but as for the Israelites living in the cities of Judah, Rehoboam reigned over them. Then King Rehoboam sent Hadoram, who was in charge of the forced labor, but the Israelites stoned him to death. However, King Rehoboam managed to get his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. Israel is in rebellion against the house of David until today. Zephaniah chapter 2 verse 1. Gather yourselves together, gather together undesirable nation before the decree takes effect and the day passes like chaff. Before the burning of the Lord's anger overtakes you, before the day of the Lord's anger overtakes you, seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth who carry out what he commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be concealed on the day of the Lord's anger. For Gaza will be abandoned and Ashkelon will become a ruin. Ashdod will be driven out at noon and Ekron will be uprooted. Woe, inhabitants of the sea coast, nation of the Cherethites. The word of the Lord is against you. Canaan, land of the Philistines, I will destroy you until there is no one left. The seacoast will become pasture lands with caves for shepherds and pens for sheep. The coastland will belong to the remnant of the house of Judah. They will find pasture there. They will lie down in the evening among the houses of Ashkelon. For the Lord their God will return to them and restore their fortunes. I have heard the taunting of Moab and the insults of the Ammonites who have taunted my people and threatened their territory. Therefore, as I live... 
This is the declaration of the Lord of armies, the God of Israel. Moab will be like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a place overgrown with weeds, a salt pit in a perpetual wasteland. The remnant of my people will plunder them. The remainder of my nation will dispossess them. This is what they get for their pride because they have taunted and acted arrogantly against the people of the Lord of armies. The Lord will be terrifying to them when he starves all the gods of the earth. Then all the distant coasts and islands of the nations will bow and worship to him, each in its own place. You Cushites will also be slain by my sword. He also will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. He will make Nineveh a desolate ruin, dry as the desert. Herds will lie down in the middle of it, every kind of wild animal. Both eagle owls and herons will roost in the capitals of its pillars. Their calls will sound from the window, but devastation will be on the threshold. For he will expose the cedar work. This is the jubilant city that lives in security, that says to herself, I exist and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become, a place for wild animals to lie down. Everyone who passes by her scoffs and shakes his fist. Lord, have mercy. My dear friends, may the Lord's rich and deep mercy and grace shine on you today and uplift you. May he be the lifter of your head and the encourager of your heart. Good day to you and Godspeed.